We've reached the last part of Esther. Um, lots of interlinked events have led us to this moment. Our story started with a drunken king at a party, ordering his wife to make an appearance for his friends. And then she refused. And that had far-reaching consequences. You may remember an advert from Honda a few years back. I thought it was really recent, but I checked and it's actually nearly 20 years old. So what I'm doing now is what happened as a teenager for me when preachers would reference like yellow pages adverts and, and milk tray adverts. I just didn't get what they were on about. But when you go home, type in Honda the Cog advert and you'll see why I'm using this illustration. It's a brilliant, brilliant advert. And it shows this tiny cog rolling down a plank of wood and it falls off and knocks another piece of car uh, equipment and then another and then another. It's like a domino chain of events. And uh, the complexity of, of the reactions increases as the advert goes on. And it's just this camera going from left to right. And uh, there's uh, kind of zip lines and, and a bonnet and there's scales. I think, and there's, there's like a mobile of, of, of um, car windows and um, eventually reaches the car electronic systems and the water sensors are attached to uh, the windscreen wipers and they start moving and uh, they crawl across the floor and the, the sequence ends and when the button of the, of the car key is pressed and the boot closes of this car and it rolls down and the Honda logo comes down and the, the, narr the narrator, who hasn't said anything so far, just says, isn't it nice when things just work? Now, what the advert doesn't show is the amount of effort, the painstaking effort of making such a thing work. Those things don't just happen, do they? The advert took a, a huge team. You know it's a, it's a hard advert to make when there's a, a documentary about how the advert was made. Um, it took them four days and over 100 takes to get it right. And it's the same with the car itself, isn't it? It's nice when things just work, says Mr. Honda. Of course it is, but it takes designers and engineers and, and factory workers and test drivers and, and countless others to make a car work and get it to you. And so we could naively look at the book of Esther and see these little cogs in work and these little events and decisions that seem independent of each other, we can see them as all little random things and we could say to ourselves, isn't it nice when things just work? But we know in reality that there is a God behind it all, not a puppet master, but a personal God working behind the scenes, telling this grand story of redemption for his people. And in the book of Esther, these, these string of, of, of coincidences occur in order for the Jews to be saved. I'm saying coincidences with, with very inverted commas. So you've got this drunken, boastful king. You've got a queen who kind of respects herself too much to be played around with. You've got a search for a new queen. You've got an attractive girl. You've got an overheard plot. And you've got a king's timely insomnia. All these things come together for the redemption of God's people. And yes, God works through miracles in the Bible. A Red Sea that parts, 
and fire from heaven, but he also works through ordinary events. And that's good news for us today because I haven't seen too many seas part recently or fire fall from the sky. But I'm glad that God still works today. He works through ordinary events in order to bring about his purposes. So what happens next in this story? We have to notice that some time has elapsed between chapter 7 and chapter 8. And because the story just keeps going, there's not kind of a fade to black. It seems as if the events described in chapter 8 are just the, the next day, maybe. The same night she exposes Haman. But we're given the exact date. It's the 23rd day of the third month. And the edict to kill the Jews was given in the first month. So uh, Mordecai and Esther have watched this uh, for two months have passed since chapter 7, which shows that Esther's uh, bravery wasn't a short-lived thing. Her willingness to plead on behalf of her people and to risk her life wasn't a one-time thing. She had clearly embraced her calling as the people's representative, as their intercessor. And in our last sermon, I think it was two weeks ago, we saw uh, the king's confusion as he stepped into the garden. He was so angry at the revelations that he had heard about Haman and the plot to kill the Jews. Uh, remember, we saw how angry he was. And he, and he turns back into the room and sees Haman with his wife and orders his execution. Now, part of that tension for the king stemmed from the fact that he couldn't, or it was very difficult at least for him to, to make a U-turn. In today's political climate, I'm sure you're fully aware of this, it's quite simple for a politician to announce a U-turn. We saw it just this week. There was a, a U-turn on the, on the budget that was made. I think the record is, is, is during the pandemic when uh, Boris and, and uh, Rishi Sunak announced a new rule that they didn't have to self-isolate if they caught COVID. And then it was two and a half hours later, there was a U-turn and they said, actually, I think, I think we do, actually. Um, so today it's very easy, isn't it, for a politician to, to change his mind. There's public broadcasts and social media for, for people to be made aware of. But ancient kings didn't have that luxury. Even the most urgent message on the fastest horses with the most efficient postman in Persia, it would take three months for a message to reach the entire Persian empire. So when the, when the king insists, I can't change my mind, he says. He could be saying that Haman's decree is already out there. It's been out there for 70 days at least. Um, so, I, so I can't take it back. Thing, the wheels are in motion. Or he might be saying as well that the fires have been stoked. The people are angry with the Jews. It would be political suicide for me to, to say, I, we, we, we're going back on this decision now. So while it would have undoubtedly made him look weak and would have been a logistical nightmare, it wasn't truly impossible for King Hasuerus to change his mind because he was the most powerful man in the world. It was just, just not probable in that sense. So what is the response? What can they do? If they can't take back the law, what can they do? Well, the answer is not an amendment to the original law, but a new law to counteract it. Look with me at verse 8 of chapter 8. 
The king says to Mordecai and Esther, you yourselves write a decree concerning the Jews as you please in the king's name and seal it with the king's signet ring. For whatever is written in the king's name and sealed with the king's signet ring, no one can revoke. And picking up in, in verse 11. By these letters, the king permitted the Jews who were in every city to gather together and protect their lives, to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the forces of any people or province that would assault them, both little children and women, and to plunder their possessions on one day in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province and published for all people so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The response is one of self-defense. They could avenge themselves against the enemies. As we read those three words in, in verse 11, we, we wince slightly to destroy to kill, to annihilate, they seem to get stronger as they go on. We're a little taken aback, aren't we? That this is what God has ordained. Isn't there something less bloodthirsty? But we need to see that this is not just a, an act of, of revenge. It wasn't just self-defense. The Jews understood Mordecai's instructions as a holy and just act of judgment against the Amalekites. Remember that we saw earlier on in the book that Haman and Mordecai's feud was not just about Mordecai's refusal to bow to him. It went right back to his ancestors, the Amalekites, who attacked God's people. And God told his people that they were to blot out the Amalekites, what they had done. This was a people who sacrificed their children to idols, who attacked the weak and the vulnerable people of Israel. And Israel's King Saul was ordered to kill them in 1 Samuel. And it's a passage which is used repeatedly to discount the idea of God existing or God being a good God. Because how could we trust in a God who allows this, what looks like genocide? We read in 1 Samuel, God said, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them. Kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as shore. And he took Agag, the king of the Amal Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction, all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. So Saul fails to listen to God. It wasn't an act of mercy necessarily, but it was, it was selfish plundering. That which was good or useful, they kept. It was theirs. And one of the rules that God had clearly given his people was that plunder was not to be taken. When the Lord commanded them to go into the promised land with Joshua, 
They devoted whole cities to the Lord. They, they ransacked it. They, they burnt it and they destroyed it. Anything that was taken out was given to the Lord. There was to be no personal profit from holy war because the destroyers were not acting of their own accord. They were acting out God's justice. They were agents of God's wrath. You see a man called Achan in the book of Joshua who is stoned to death when he is found to have kept treasure for himself. So here in the book of Esther, that was a little history lesson for you. Here in the book of Esther, God's people are finally obeying what Saul should have done centuries before. Remember who Mordecai was related to. He was a Kishite, which meant that he was related to Saul. And who was Haman related to? Well, he was one of the Amalekites. He was an Agagite. So this was the story finally coming to an end. And Haman thought that he was going to close the story his way. And yet God had other ideas. And that's why they destroy and kill Haman's 10 sons. And therefore, under the leadership of of Esther and Mordecai, the Jews of Persia obeyed where King Saul had disobeyed and did to their enemies as the Lord had commanded. They're told to arm themselves, and the day finally comes. You can imagine how terrifying it must have been waking up that morning. Not as ominous it would have been as it would have been before they were given this edict, but it was still one of fear. They were going to be attacked. We read in chapter 9, now in the 12th month, that is the month of Adar, the day has been counting down. The time came for the king's command and his decree to be executed on the day that the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, the opposite occurred in that the Jews themselves overpowered those who hated them. And it goes on. And by the end, we read this in verse 16. The remainder of the Jews in the king's provinces gathered together and protected their lives. They had rest from their enemies and killed 75,000 of their enemies. But they did not lay a hand on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Vedar, and on the 14th of the month they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. Can make us feel quite uncomfortable, can't it? Even as Christians, we can see these numbers of, of people dying, and we 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 think, isn't there another way that God could have done this? We must remember that God is perfectly loving and perfectly just. And if we, as, as broken and sinful people, feel angry and distressed. And we feel a, a sense of injustice when we see um, annexations in Ukraine. We see uh, the turmoil in Iran. We see uh, care homes uh, where, where people are abused, where we see mass murder in, in countries like Thailand. We see a, a little girl being murdered in our own home. Those things make us angry, do they not? We crave justice. We demand something be done. We don't say, oh, well, never mind. We want those responsible for these things to be punished, don't we? And if imperfect people such as ourselves feel this way, imagine the righteous anger of a perfect and holy God. So the punishment for Haman and his followers 
is just the beginning of God's justice, which is to come. On uh, the final day, his justice will come at last. Um, We read on in verse 13. Esther says, if it pleases the king, let it be granted to the Jews who are in Shushan to do again tomorrow according to today's decree. Now, I, I've, I've said why they killed on the first day. It was God's righteous justice. One of the things that we don't fully understand is why Esther commands a second day of killing, whether it was the right thing to do, whether, whether they were, there was more threat from other Agagites who wanted a second day of violence, or whether she'd been corrupted by the power she now had. The text doesn't tell us whether this was right or wrong. But one commentator sums it up well when they say this, whether or not Esther was justified in extending the killing a second day, the repeated failure of Israel's greatest leaders to war against moral and spiritual darkness without engaging in sin themselves suggests that no one is worthy to wage true holy war in God's name. God's strategy against sin and evil was awaiting the perfect warrior who could execute divine justice with clean hands and a perfect heart. His name is Jesus. Isn't that true? When Jesus comes, he will judge with utter fairness. There won't be any doubt about whether it was the right thing to do. So what can we apply from this? Am I about to command the people to raise up self-defense when we are attacked by perpetrators? Is that what I'm about to do tonight? I'll be on Wales Online before you know it. There's, that's not what I'm going to do, by the way. There's no such edict that puts a price on our heads today. But what I want to do is consider this verse, verse 16 of chapter 9. The remainder of the Jews in the king's provinces gathered together and protected their lives and had rest from their enemies. This talks about the relief that the Jews got from their enemies. Now, who are our enemies today? You might feel as if you've got enemies. And you, you may have a boss who undermines your every decision, who undermines your belief. You might have classmates in school who laugh at the fact that you spend your Sunday at church. You've got people in the media who label Christians as, as deluded and old-fashioned. But is the lesson from Esther for us to get our own back by arming ourselves against them? No, it's an unseen enemy that we face. In Ephesians, we read this. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Yes, there are those who mock us. Yes, there are those that make our lives as Christians more difficult. But our enemy is someone far more powerful and someone that we cannot see, and that is the devil. And as we wrestle with sin, and with temptation, and with doubts, and lies, 
with the devil's darkness and his hatred towards God. Be, be sure that he wants to take your attention away from him, away from God. But here comes the good news, brother and sister. In the same way the Jews knew relief from their enemies, one day you will know relief from yours. There is a day coming where the devil will be defeated and destroyed once and for all. And it's begun already that the cross was the beginning. He was disarmed at the cross. Uh, Colossians tells us that the father disarmed the ruler and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus. So Jesus disarmed the powers. He has taken away Satan's power to hold sinners to the debt of their sin and their trespasses. Satan, all he can do is accuse. He points to your sin. But Christ, in taking the the curse of the law, has taken this weapon from Satan. And through the resurrection, he has taken the sting away from death. And even better still, we know how the story ends. Revelation 20, the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Until that moment comes, the devil can cause us. He can uh, cause us harm. He can accuse us. He can whisper in our ears, how can you do this? Call yourself a Christian. A believer would never do something like that. You've surely out God this time. But when that happens, we look to Christ and remember the war has already been won. Yes, there are daily battles that we face, temptations and doubts and times where we will fail. But we remember that there's a day coming when the devil will not only be disarmed as he already has been, but he will be destroyed once and for all. The devil will be dealt with and heaven will be a sinless place. In Revelation, we read these comforting words. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring into glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter into it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. You see, that desire for justice that each and every one of us has when we read another sickening story in the news that will be realized when the Lord Jesus returns. And if we look at our own lives and we cower and shrink back because we think of all the sin and the shame that we're responsible for, we need not fear if we're in Jesus. Yes, we were unclean, but he has made us clean. Yes, we deserve to perish. We deserve punishment. But at the cross, Jesus took the punishment that we deserve. How glorious is that? So what are we to make of Purim? Every time I've written Purim this week, it's corrected it to Putin. Um, 
but it's Purim. I assure you, it says Purim. Jews still celebrate Purim as a festival today. Um, it takes its name from, from the lots. It's a, it's a funny thing that the Jews did in order to get their own back on Haman. Uh, from the lots that Haman chose to cast uh, for the massacre of the Jews, they now have a festival that they still celebrate to this day. And although the fateful day of that battle was on the 13th, Purim was not to be celebrated on the 13th. It was to be celebrated on the days afterwards. Why? Because the, the festival does not celebrate victory in battle. The joy is not malicious glee over the blood spilt, the slaughter of their enemies. No, the festival commemorates the fact that they gained relief from their enemies. That day after when they woke up, they pinched themselves. Did that really happen? That last year of their lives had been tortuous, dreading that day to come. But the day after was so wonderful because they knew that they were safe. It had been transformed from sadness to joy and from mourning to a holiday. So on that day, when Purim comes around, the entire book of Esther is read in the synagogue. The Jewish people are reminded of the deliverances uh, from, the, from the hands of the enemies. And, and every time Haman's name is, is mentioned in the book, everyone boos. And uh, they show displeasure towards him. And in the same way God told them to blot out the name of uh, the Amalekites, they try and blot out Haman's name with their boos. B-O-O-S. Uh, Jewish people celebrate uh, with all types of fun activities. They eat sweet treats. They, they have these triangular cakes, um, which on, at the start looks really innocent and lovely. But then you find out that it's because the Persians would, would chop off people's ears before they impaled them. And they're supposed to be Haman's ears. Um, so that's the, like jam tarts, but, but a bit more sinister. Uh, they send gifts to each other. They do like secret secret Mordecai, I guess. And uh, they sing songs to each other. It sounds like a, a really fun day. Well, how ought we to think of Purim today? Am I about to suggest that we, we start putting a day aside or two days aside to celebrate? Um, I think it's important that we don't ignore this aspect of the story. And this is what a writer called Mike Cosba says. If we ignore Purim, he says, then Esther's story is about life's big critical moments and the spirituality of the book could be misperceived. It would be about making the right decision at the right time, a revivalistic call to spiritual awakening. There's nothing wrong with that per se, but we need to remember Purim in order to have a fuller picture of where the spirituality of Esther's story is leading us. The book doesn't end with the victory in battle. It ends with the inauguration of Purim, a new tradition meant to preserve the story for generations to come. Purim then says as much about the spirituality of the book of Esther as the for such a time as this speech. Yes, the critical moments of our life when we must choose whether or not to identify as God's people matter deeply, but the rest of life matters too. And identifying as one of God's people isn't just about one decision. It's about our whole lives. And Purim invites us to see it that way, a rhythm built into the calendar to remind us that although the enemy is prowling and hungry, God 
preserves his people. So that was a really helpful quote. So rather than us celebrating God's faithfulness two days a year, we come together, don't we? Every Sunday, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, remembering that we have and will be preserved. And by doing that, we remember that Esther is part of a much larger story that runs all the way from before the beginning of time, through from Abraham to the Lord Jesus Christ to the church today. And if Haman had succeeded, God's people would have been destroyed. And the story of God's saving work in and through Abraham and his descendants would have been coming to an end. There would have been no fulfillment in Christ. There would have been no salvation. That's why we have to have this book in our Bibles. That's why we have to have a bigger view of this book than a big book of morals. It's about God's faithfulness to his promise. There are these wonderful pictures of Esther and Mordecai as Christ. And we've mentioned the care that God has for his people as individuals and as a people. And we see this at work in chapter 8 and verse 15. As you see Mordecai going out from the presence of the king in, in royal colors of blue and white and a crown of gold. Mordecai's thriving. What a transformation. Uh, the man whose head was covered in ash, whose cheeks were stained by tears, is now wearing the finest of royal clothes. And this is a picture of every believer's transformation. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. We will go from sackcloth to the splendor of being with the Lord. And chapter 10 tells us a little bit more about what happens to Mordecai. Uh, for Mordecai the Jew was second to the king and was great among the Jews and well received by the multitude of his brethren, seeking the good of his people and speaking peace to all his country. Notice he didn't go into the ministry. We don't read about the prophecies of Mordecai. He doesn't go back to Israel even. He goes back to the palace and he works in a kingdom where likely many people still hated him and worshipped a different god. But he worked diligently for God. Now, some of you in this building tonight may well end up being missionaries. You may work for Christian charities. You may end up working for a church. But not everyone, thankfully. Some people work in their offices. Some people will work in different places. Some people will not get jobs at all, but they will have a different sphere of influence and they will serve God there. And that's wonderful, isn't it? And Mordecai's influence was not to be as a prophet of God, but it was to be felt in his secular work. And that is my challenge to you this evening. If you are in secular work, and most of you who are sat here this evening are, you can serve God in your office place, in your, in your home, in your school, wherever it might be that God has put you, serve God there. And notice the betterment for the people that he brings. Look at verse 16. And the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and city, wherever the king's command and decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness. 
And then many people of the land, it says, became Jews because fear of the Jews fell upon them. Many Persians became Jews because they saw that surely there was a powerful God behind all of this. Surely this is what we need to do. We need to come to this God. So as you finish, can I just give you five conclusions from the whole book? What have we learned? Five quick thoughts from the book of Esther. One, God is true to his promise. Even when things seem dark and God seems to be hidden, we know that ultimately he cannot and will not break his promise. Secondly, he works behind the scenes. He doesn't always show himself and reveal himself fully. Sometimes he's working behind the scenes. He may not always use miracles. But events will always lead to his will being carried out. Thirdly, we've also seen that God cares about individuals and his people as a whole. Not only like individuals like Esther and Mordecai, but the people are strengthened as a result. Fourthly, we see that God detests evil and will bring peace to his people. This may be temporary and practical as he did for his people in the time of Esther. He will do so on a permanent basis when the devil is destroyed and is cast into the lake of fire. And fifthly and finally, let me finish with this thought. We are reminded of Purim. And although we do not make it an annual holiday, although you can celebrate it if you want, uh, we should come often and remember God's mercy and saving work on Sundays. Just as Purim celebrates the relief that the Jews had from the people that had been their enemies, we too know something of that fear of death being conquered by our promise of life. The Jews in Susa went from uh, the fear of death to the celebration of life. And if you're a Christian here today, we know a similar sense of relief and a joy by being united by the Lord Jesus Christ. In the first chapter of Revelation, Jesus says this, do not be afraid I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead. And behold, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Death has been conquered forever and ever. The resurrection ensures it. And we know that if our trust is in the Lord Jesus, then even though we die, the sting no longer remains. We will live with him forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this truth. We thank you for this good news that through the Lord Jesus Christ, we have been given relief from our enemies. We cannot see our enemy. It's the prince of darkness who, who holds sway over the skies, Lord. And yet we know that there is a day coming where judgment will come. We pray for Anyone in this room who is living in rebellion, we pray that you would speak to them this evening. Would you draw near to them and would you uh, speak to them and would you not let them leave without having considered these things? Amen.